2: Accessing Entry 1414.PS6301 Certificate Number 33935 Water Wars
0: Going to be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not going to get.
3: Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A. or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that.
1: So, as you probably know, the western United States and the southwestern United States are naturally deserts. They aren't meant to really support life. Um, So, we shouldn't have packed, like, 100 million people
2: into the southwest? More people moving to Phoenix every minute?
1: Well if you were going on whether or not that environment could support those people naturally without human intervention absolutely we should not have done it
2: unless we're all some kind of horned toad that licks dew off of cactus or something right right those Which environments we're
1: not. we are not our
2: uh, listeners maybe <laughs> we you and i john are not
1: i suspect really when i think of futurelings i do think of them as horned toads uh, and that may be spe- speciesist.
2: Are they human size or are they toad size? Uh, I think they're, yeah, <laughs> I think they're, they're
1: three and a half feet tall. They're,
2: they're, you're splitting the baby. <laughs> are they licking of things like in that vivid word picture I just painted?
1: They're sort of, yeah, they're sort of the size of Java man,
2: <laughs> but with horns. I like the idea of humanity walking <laughs> forward, you know, the right step, the right foot is ahead each time. So you can't see their junk. Gets to Crovane, it gets to us. And then it's like a little frog thing somehow.
1: Either starts over or declines. (laughs) I don't
2: know what happened in the middle, but now it's like Tom Cruise scale
1: reptile men. Well, they're definitely going to be able to survive if there is a, a, a dramatic climate change that sort of reduces even more the amount of water that is available in the southern part of the United States. Because it was already an environment that got less rain per year than Egypt really yeah uh the- naturally the areas for instance between phoenix and los angeles i mean in now it, it it's full of golf courses and gardens but when pioneers were coming across that territory on covered wagons it was an absolute like Death journey. It was the Sahara, essentially. It was awful. People, I mean, you, um, there was no water the entire distance. Everywhere you look, the there's thousands.
2: one of those cow skulls in the foreground. Right. You're like, man,
1: this is a bummer. That's not just a belt buckle. That was, the, that's truly the reality. Not just a Georgia O'Keeffe painting, like death everywhere. And that's true also of Southern California, of the vast majority of Southern California. And at the turn of the century, at the turn of the not the last century, but the century before that in in our current schema. Our
2: century. Right. John, John and I are middle-aged men, futurelings. From the... When we say the century, we're thinking of like the last obsolete century.
1: Right. We are broadcasting to you from the 21st century, but we think of the 20th century as being the current century. We are foreigners here <laughs> in this strange new world. At the end of the 19th century, there was this feeling as we moved into the Western United States that this... Enormous, basically quarter of the country, which was sparsely populated and and really like couldn't be utilized, that this was an area that needed to be transformed by technology and by human ingenuity to become useful land
2: so people knew this they knew when they headed west it wasn't just going to be like the Ohio Valley for lush green hills until they got to the Pacific like were people ever surprised that it the further they got, they're like, oh, this is why there's nobody here. It kind of sucks.
1: Well, yeah, land speculators were not entirely scrupulous about how they advertised the West to people. Right. And there was a certain amount of, you know, come West and you, you can get 180 acres of beautiful farm. It's just like this, only bigger. Right. And and then it was just a bunch of horned toads, except much, <laughs> much smaller ones. Uh, but in the figure of Teddy Roosevelt, we had a, a president who in 19... 19- a one who had spent time in the West and who was a naturalist in the style of the time, which was to say he liked hunting big game animals <laughs> and he liked being, you know. I
2: love the environment.
1: Yeah, he likes wearing. Here's some environment I killed. Big furry chaps and a big hat. But he did know a lot of the original sort of Western conservationists and he had a sense of the West. And there was an idea that, you could utilize the water that was in the West through irrigation and turn desert into farm. Um, what's surprising is that the, the biggest river in, in the Southwest is the Colorado River, which is actually a pretty small river compared to the Mississippi or the Columbia or the Yukon. Really? Know, like, I
2: think I used to assume because it's named after a state, it must be big. Like that To me, that's what gives a river a lot of, and I'm sure it's the other way around, the state's named for the river. But it really gives a river a lot of authority to me if it's got a whole state name for it. Missouri, that's got to be a big one. Well, and the Missouri is a big river. Yeah, but then you're like Platte. I don't know. The Platte's not not a, no small river. That's the thing. But there's no state of Platte, that's so I'm true. like, uh, this is clearly some minor <laughs> river. If it was a big river, it'd be called the Nebraska
1: River. Well, and the thing about the Colorado River is that it supports eight states. I mean, the right. the entire Southwest is dependent. On the Colorado, the Colorado provides water to Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Nevada, Colorado, uh, and through irrigation, it's a lot of the water in Los Angeles and and San Diego. I mean, it's uh, it is the major river, and people mostly imagine it just going through the Grand Canyon. You know, that's that's how you imagine the Colorado. Well, and and in the early 1900s, very very few people had even been down the Colorado. Huh. Um, it was a it was a rough and rugged river through really crazy rapids, a, a silty and hostile river through, again, this environment that didn't have a lot of, there wasn't any human civilization there. And I think as into the 1900s, fairly far into the 1900s, you could count the number of people who had been down the Colorado. Wow. Um, now it's every idiot on a raft. Well, yeah, because uh, because of the work that's been done. But at the time, it was a life. It was a life oh, it, it was not adventure. navigable. It was right. rapids. You, you and, went down it and you weren't sure if you came around the next corner whether there would be a hundred foot waterfall or. And also, you were taking it to where? I mean, the Colorado emptied in, it went through Mexico and emptied yeah, into Gulf of California Baja, or something, right? right? So, Teddy Roosevelt, with the support of this sort of Western movement, was president when they formed the Bureau of Reclamation. And the Bureau of Reclamation exists to this day. What do they reclaim? They are reclaiming land by harnessing the water to reclaim. Now I don't know. I don't know what they think they're reclaiming yeah, it from. Not, it's not
2: like it used to be some lush uh, rice fatty that they're now. I mean, maybe to restore.
1: The, maybe uh, like eighty thousand years ago it was, but
2: it should be the Bureau of Clamation. The Bureau of Clamation. They just do claymation. They just do Gumby and Pokey <laughs> cartoons. <laughs>
1: But it was, you know, this was a time when we were, when human beings were embarking upon these major earth moving projects, the the idea to build the Panama Canal, the idea to really massively terraform our environment to suit our needs. That's Uh,
2: very interesting to me, you know, because at the time that was probably a conservation movement, you know, and today, you know, I don't want to get ahead of you here, but, you know, I'm sure an environmentally minded person would have the opposite. Like I'm, I'm descended from my Mormon pioneer forefathers, you know, came to Salt Lake and they saw it as a matter of biblical prophecy that they would make the desert blossom, like a rose, you know? Right. Like that they would make it green and lush in in a former desert place. And that was their idea of, uh, you know, that's, that's good land practice. And I think today we might be like horrified by the idea that you would move somewhere and then totally change the ecosystem. Like, that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. Maybe it's not sustainable. Like, you know, today that we're driven to horror by the same thing that would make the the kind of terraforming that would make them sit up straight in their boots and feel good.
1: Well, this actually, this schism actually existed at the time. Oh, really? Some people
2: were like, don't mess up the desert.
1: There were generally, I mean, the mainstream conservationist mentality was like the one you're describing in Utah. Let's take advantage of, of our technology to improve the wilderness and make it a sportsman's paradise. Let's plant some potatoes. Right. And actually the Sierra Club was kind of founded in this schism. Right. John Muir was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt. John Muir? Muir.
2: That's one of those names where there's no way to say it. So it sounds right. John
1: Muir. It's probably
2: some Scottish sound that like didn't (laughs) quite cross the Atlantic. Right.
1: Yeah. You want to say like, if your name is Muir, just spell it M-U-R-E. Why is it M-U-I-R? What is that?
2: Muir doesn't even sound like a thing. It sounds like a a Star Trek alien or something.
1: (laughs) The Muir have
2: beamed aboard,
1: Captain. So John Muir was an original guy, uh, one of these original conservationists that was trying to, to, trying to convince the government in Washington to set aside, he wanted to save Yellowstone from being, I don't know, turned into an amusement park or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, from logging and mining right. at the time.
2: I've been to Muir Woods, beautiful.
1: That's there. Redwoods. very nice. We have him to thank for it.
2: Nice job, Muir.
1: But in the early 1900s, there was this sort of initial controversy in California where the the proposal was to build what became called the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which was a dam to provide water for the city of San Francisco. And half of the progressives still thought of themselves as conservationists that supported this kind of project, right? We're going to, we're going to dam this river. We're going to use it and its nature. To right? benefit man. To benefit man. And half of the people, I think had this nascent sense of like, no, 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 we want to preserve and keep nature in its present state. And the, what we would call conservationists now, the people that wanted to preserve it lost the battle and Hetch Hetchy was constructed. And it was, it actually was a situation. It kind of played into the election of Woodrow Wilson. Really? But but, um, it was a national issue. It was a national issue because it was sort of setting the tone for how we're going to use public land.
2: I thought my generation invented pointless infighting
1: on the left, but. Uh, oh no, it's always been there.
2: It sounds like it's a, always a losing cause maybe to be the guy who's like, okay, this is going to be worse for people, but we should really not put in the reservoir. You know, because even if that person is right, like everybody is incentivized to be like, wait, so this is bad for everyone.
1: You're just saying it should stay the way it is. Well, so the tune changes over time. The Bureau of Reclamation initially started planning, dams on the Colorado in order to start using some of that inor- those enormous tracts of land for agriculture. At the same time, the city of Los Angeles was sort of, Growing big enough that the, the water from the L.A. River could no longer support the population.
2: The L.A. River, which we now know as the dry, the dry cement bed from Greece and rubble without a cause or whatever. Right.
1: but at the time when L.A. Was, was- a real river. It was a river. And that and was it where was the city got its water. The only source of water.
2: Because L.A. was tiny. Those people I think people might have a hard time. Uh, you know, our, our future listeners may have some kind of Blade Runner future where L.A. is a megalopolis. But it was a a little
1: orange grove town or something. It was nothing because if you think about it, there is no reason for LA to exist where it is. Amen. There's no harbor. Uh, It's not the intersection of two rivers. It's not, you know, typically people put cities at- You can
2: see on the map why there's Chicago. That's right.
1: This is the Ford over the big river, or this is the edge of the mountain range, or where there's a deep water port. L.A. is none of those. So was it just the accidental
2: end of a railroad, or why is there LA? I mean,
1: the, the oil was discovered around Los Angeles, and the Southern Pacific Railroad was built to L.A. as part of an early oil boom. So right. it was your just your typical sort of resource extraction American story. Um, by, I, can, I
2: can picture the Derricks from the end of uh, L.A. Confidential. And I think there's still—isn't there still oil mining, like, in the Beverly Center? Like, there's some corner of that— Block that's still a working oil well. If you drive around
1: L.A., you'll find little oil pumpers in people's backyards. There's still quite a bit of oil being pulled out of there. And in 1900, California had supplanted Ohio as the major oil-producing state uh, in the country. So the Southern Pacific was there, and it became a terminus, and the city grew, but it outgrew its water supply.
2: I think my favorite fact about tiny L.A. is that it it was so small that as late as the 1950s, people were still arguing about whether you should say Los Angeles. Well, and you, you, you'll you still hear people, old Old-timers? old people say
1: Los Angeles. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't
2: happen with New York and Chicago. Like that's a, that's a decided <laughs> issue. But LA is still just a little baby city. Los Angeles,
1: the city of angels. But they didn't have, they had angels, but no water. But no water. And there was no water around, right? You couldn't, it wasn't like you could go over and get a bucket of water from somewhere. It was a dry basin. And a man named... William Mulholland, uh, now immortalized in Los Angeles by a thousand like place names. Drives and falls and whatnot. Um, was the city of LA's water engineer. And he he was best friends with the mayor of Los Angeles, or, you know, best friends as much as two guys in 1902 can be. They could have
2: uh, been really good friends.
1: I think they were. You could probably hold hands back then. His name was Eaton, and they, uh, they did. They went on like long wagon trips together, and they really enjoyed each other. Aw. And Eaton... Took Mulholland on a little adventure, a little wagon adventure up to a place, you know, several hundred miles from LA called the Owens Valley, which was this beautiful uh, kind of lush valley in between two pretty extraordinary mountain ranges, the Sierra Nevada and the other one. Were they growing stuff? In the Owens Valley? So the Owens Valley is a very interesting situation where it itself is an arid land because the valley sits in this rain shadow of these two mountain ranges. But the water that comes down out of the mountains, you sure. know, the melting snow, produced this really verdant area a couple of times a year. Like it would flood with the spring rains. And then there was this, you know, very farmable kind of land, river bottom That had a a beautiful river running through the middle of it. That also, then, all summer long, had high temperatures and lush, sunny garden environment.
2: That's how ancient Egypt worked. Nile flooded every year. You get you get nice topsoil. You can grow stuff. Like we don't have we don't probably don't have a civilization if the Nile doesn't flood right.
1: And the Owens really was uh was kind of the Nile of California. So these two guys, Eaton and Mulholland, went up there and realized, oh, this territory is just occupied by some country farm people this water because of the altitude of the Owens valley it's much higher than LA and if they could take this water and aqueduct it down to LA that gravity alone was would be enough to deliver this water to LA without the use of pumps nice and it would be an enormous undertaking to build this aqueduct. How,
2: how far are we Is this like a hundred miles? Couple hundred
1: miles. Okay. But in order to develop the land of the West, there was a homestead act, which allowed people to come out and stake some stakes in the ground and say, this is going to be my 160 acres. And, along with the rights to the land, they also got the water rights to the land. The, the rights to the water that would enable you to irrigate your right. land. And what kind of legal protections does I give you if the shady
2: bad guys from Chinatown come in and want to aqueduct oil your water? Like, were they, were they protected
1: or not? Well, they were protected, but they did not expect the sort of unscrupulous business practices of Mulholland and Eaton. Uh, big city slickers That's coming right. in. They came in and they started to buy... The little farms, and along with the farms, bought the water rights, Ah. and it was a little bit of a false flag, right? They didn't, they weren't interested in the farms, and they would come up to these guys and say, "Oh, well, you know, we'd like to buy your farm for a good price," and the farmers would sell, not thinking that they were gradually, these two were gradually acquiring on behalf of the city of Los Angeles, and on behalf of Eaton himself, who was looking to make a profit from this. Did did he?
2: In the manner of He's, early 20th century mayors, he made a good
1: he really killing did. on this? He He bought all this land and then ceded the water rights to the city of Los Angeles, but, you know, became a major, major landowner in the process. But little by little, they secured the rights to the water from the Owens River such that then they surprised everyone with this proposal. Oh, we're going to take this river and route it into an aqueduct and take all this water to LA. Those water rights were probably not worth that much
2: until... Suddenly, the Owens Valley faces a situation where there is no more water. We got it all now.
1: Right. And what was crazy was then the, the price of real estate along the route of the aqueduct to LA, which had formerly been just desert land, Eaton and his cronies went to their little group of friends in LA and said, hey, you should buy up all this desert in the San Joaquin Valley. You should buy all this desert in the San Fernando Valley because we're going to run this aqueduct right through the middle of it and all of a sudden that's going to be that land is also going to have access to water it's early insider trading pretty good stuff
3: when it comes to meat quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste and even though it might be better for you and the environment a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout.
2: So did the river it was was it a it's a raised aqueduct, so it doesn't irrigate stuff as it passes? Or? So it
1: so the aqueduct was Mulholland who was a self-trained engineer designed and built. That's who you want. I know,
2: right? Hey, can I get a self-trained engineer to come fix my foundation?
1: He'd never built anything. And suddenly he was building the largest water project in history, bigger than the Panama Canal. Wow. Uh, Imported this giant pipe from Germany, built a lot of the aqueduct is is actually just a trench. Like the water is open to the air and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's in pipes. And it heads down all the way uh, all the way to Los Angeles. You can see it from I-5. So to this day, that's where, if you turn a faucet in LA... That water is coming from the Owens River, a lot of it. And that aqueduct that he built in in the early 1900s is still in operation. It's still the way it, the water is, is
2: moved. And what about the people... I mean, that's a very happy story for LA. What about the people in the Owens Valley? Like, What happened up there?
1: Well, so their river dried up and their verdant, uh, Oasis dried up and the Owens Valley became, uh, like a desolate salt pan. I mean, they really, they really got, they got the short end of the stick on that one.
2: It's a zero sum game. I mean, not always. Right. I'm sure irrigation can really, you know, use water more efficiently in a lot of cases, but this is one where you can, if you're a certain kind of conservationist, you can really see, yeah, you can engineer water to do this, but here are the side effects you're going to get.
1: Well, so in California, there have always been sort of two big stressors. And one is these megalopolises, LA, San Diego, San Francisco. They need a tremendous amount of water just to support their population. And the other is traffic. No, the other, well, that's a whole ep- different episode. But the other one is this Bureau of Reclamation project to gardenify the entire American West. California, through irrigation, through a separate project to use other water in California, irrigated what had formerly been just dry desert and turned it into the major food-producing state of the United States. So this is like the Central Valley? This is all the lettuce and strawberries and almonds and whatever it is? So this was a separate project called the Central Valley Project, which was another one of these Bureau of Reclamation projects, like was happening on the Colorado River. So... Fast forward to the 1920s, Bureau of Reclamation has decided that what they're going to do is dam the Colorado River. And they start building the Boulder Canyon Dam, which becomes the Hoover Dam, right, which we all know. Boulder Dam. Boulder Dam,
2: right. But named for President Hoover, I guess, if you're...
1: Later on, named for President Hoover.
2: Basically, you just want to be in office when something big gets built. And by accident, I'm sure Hoover had nothing to
1: do with it, but... It was constructed largely during the Roosevelt administration. And this is I'm sorry, the second Roosevelt administration, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Right. This was during the Great Depression when America needed a lot of big projects to keep people employed. And that was the whole sort of New Deal democratic model was, well, everybody's out of work, so the government is going to build these big projects. And they started working on Hoover Dam. They also started working on Grand Coulee Dam and envisioned this whole – envisioned that the entire American West was going to be reclaimed – turned into fertile land by these giant waterworks. And they weren't dumb to the notion that they were interfering with the preservation of, of the natural ecosystem. Sure. What what did they say though? They said that it was a cost benefit analysis that, yeah, we were going to lose some salmon, but who ate salmon? Indians. And we were driving them off the land anyway. Um, There wasn't a... Two birds
2: with one stone. (laughs) There
1: wasn't a real... Uh, no one shed a tear for the loss of saltwater marshes, bird habitats, salmon runs, because it was it was seen as- Collateral damage. Collateral damage to what was going to become uh, a new Eden in it's, the West. It's going to be such a paradise that you
2: won't mind if there's an ugly marsh that's gone. Right. We must be very different from those people, I think. Like, I feel like people today would have sort of this innate sense that changing anything, even if you're saying you're making it better, like- wait, is there enough water to turn this desolate West into a verdant wonderland? Like, I feel like we're just more skeptical of the human power to make our environment better because we live in an age when we've seen that it didn't work. I guess they had had not yet seen
1: humanity mess up the environment on any big scale. That skepticism and the formation of the American environmental movement happened as a result of this whole Bureau of Reclamation project. Ah. So... Hoover Dam was built, and all of a sudden we had abundant electrical power. Right, the, the it, it, one of the collateral benefits was that we also had hydroelectricity. To this day, you and I live in a state with extremely cheap, clean electricity. It's the only reason that Las Vegas can exist. It's the only reason that Phoenix can exist. I mean, these places are well, powered. Las Vegas by would it.
2: have to have more LED efficient bulbs on its giant cowboys and whatnot.
1: Uh it, no even even with LED lights <laughs> without Hoover Dam there's nothing out there no reason for Las Vegas to exist but these projects were think what think what the East Coast would be if the mob had never you know come west if the, if the mob didn't uh, didn't control the garbage <laughs> like how many U S states would be controlled by the mob right now if Las Vegas had not formed well and there and the Bureau of Reclamation. And its relationships to Western senators and its relationship to Western ranchers and farmers. There is a kind of mob, not not actual mob, but a but there is a tremendous amount of crooked dealing, in the sense that the water rights were subsidized for small farmers, but a lot of those small farms were bought in the same sort of process that they did in, in the Owens Valley, mm-hmm. bought by larger concerns Insider in order trading. in order to get the water rights but the water is still subsidized because those little farms were you know they were small small farmers right and so the actual cost of the water if it were at market rates would be astronomical it would be impossible for people to grow strawberries in the middle of the Arizona desert, because the water would be too expensive if it was at market rates, but it's subsidized by the government. And so you can't unplug this system. You can't apportion water more fairly in the West because there are all these sort of treaties and built in, like this person has sort of primary access to the water, by virtue of their early ownership of it, and the person further downstream is only allotted a certain percentage of the water that comes through. I mean, so many different rules well, and regulations. Water's weird because of the whole upstream issue. I mean, right. you can really drink somebody's
2: milkshake, you know, like... You can you can turn off the tap essentially, like like Mulholland
1: and Eaton did. Right, the, the Colorado River no longer flows into Mexico because we just take all the water before it even gets there. And what can they do? I mean, there there are treaties that say a certain amount of the water belongs to Mexico, but it never it never makes it there. I've read about how
2: uh, you know some of these giant lakes that were created in the Southwest, you know, Lake Mead and whatnot, that were you know just created with dams. You know, it's incredibly inefficient to leave big lake sitting on sandstone in a hundred degree heat all year, you know, an incredible amount of that water now evaporates. Yeah. It did not before, or, you know, it either sinks into the sandstone or it evaporates in the sun and it's gone. It's not growing strawberries or almonds anywhere. And it's certainly not watering some poor Mexican guy's garden. It just disappeared. Cause we were like, let's have a lake and some hydroelectric
1: power. Well, and what's interesting is that at the time there was a theory, which was called the rain follows the plow. <laughs> and the theory,
2: so, the theory, all I know about it is the forward name. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's not
1: true. <laughs> the theory was if you irrigate the West and build farms and grow green plants, that the, the off gassing of all of that. dew and oxygen and the whole process will create a new ecosystem where the desert will become verdant the water will will evaporate and form clouds and the clouds will rain and you will have changed the desert i guess it seems a little less crazy
2: they're not just saying it's some mechanism i can't explain as long as i plant crops it'll turn nice and then there will be rain like they do have an idea
1: they had an idea.
2: And I feel like if 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 I had some NASA guy explaining to me that how that would work on Mars, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you just start a water cycle."
1: Right, you start a water cycle. But in it's fact, not, it's not crazy. It it wasn't crazy. It it convinced enough people that they A lot of people bought plows. A lot of people bought plows, a lot of people bought a lot of land and a lot of people built a lot of infrastructure. And the idea was just that you could infinitely grow and plow and build and the earth would follow your lead.
2: Don't these guys have at least the basic Newtonian idea that water cannot be created or destroyed? (laughs) I mean, like, where's all this extra water going to come from? If this used to be a cow skull desert, you know, there's only so much sleight of hand.
1: What's funny is that right before the Dust Bowl, right before the Great Depression, there were several years which were the wettest on record.
2: Oh, so they were like, it's working, it's working. And
1: it was just when people were really entering into this part of the West and like, look at it, it rains all the time here. All you have to do is, is drag a stick through the ground and throw some seeds in and look at the corn. And so people went bananas and they thought that the rain follows the plow was working and they thought that this was a wet environment. It's an accident of weather. Yeah.
2: Like think what a different country we'd be living in if those had been 3 dry years right. and they're like this doesn't work,
1: everybody let's go back to Missouri. Well, and what happened was that they plowed up all of this grassland, which did which the earth had been held in by grass basically, like wild grass for millennia.
2: Right, I assume we needed that prairie for something.
1: Yep, that was just like prairie for buffalo and and uh, little foxes or whatever it was that were running around. During the antelope play. That's right. Uh, and then those wet years were immediately followed by severe drought years, which coincided with the Great Depression and produced this environment where nothing was holding that topsoil down. The grass was gone. The, everything was denuded to make farms. And then the wind picked up and it basically picked up the entire prairie and just turned it into a big dust storm.
2: I wonder where it went. Where would all that dust wind up? Like is Nebraska now in like...
1: Venezuela or Portugal or something. Yeah, I guess it went up into the air and rained down, probably on Los Angeles, or maybe you maybe it all went into the Mississippi. That's true. Maybe it just went out to sea. But so this, but this idea actually did produce this world that we live in now. A city of Phoenix that's two million plus people should not even be there. The city of Las Vegas. The fact that Los Angeles is uh, like a megatropolis of 12 million people.
2: And this is, in our day, has been intensified by the accident that um, circulation slows down as your body ages, which means old people (laughs) seek out, like stones rolling downhill, they seek out a a warm climate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pioneers would have looked at Phoenix and been like, pass, this is terrible. This is a hell on earth. You, then you turn 80 and you're like, Phoenix, eh? You know, <laughs> that'll warm my old
1: bones. Well, and what? so that was all happening in the 50s and 60s. People were colonizing Phoenix and Las Vegas. They were u- utilizing this water and they were being really encouraged to do so by the Bureau of Reclamation and the government and land speculators saying like, this wealth will never end. Like <laughs> head west, my friends. And if you if you go to Phoenix, if you go to Las Vegas, they use water... Every chance they get, there are public fountains everywhere. There are water parks, swimming pools. Everybody uh, has a green lawn. Like they don't. It almost seems designed to look unsustainable,
2: like to give you the idea ha, ha, your civilization is teetering on a decadent <laughs> abyss. Ha, <laughs> right. ha, look at these fountains. This water will never run out. Every ten minutes, the Bellagio is going to do some different crazy thing.
1: And it turned into a. It turned into a situation where the Bureau of Reclamation believed that it could do this forever. And they got into a strange competition after World War II. The Army Corps of Engineers was empowered to begin doing civilian improvement projects, dams and locks and dredging. The Corps of Engineers had all this technology and all this power to build and In a way, the Corps was set up in competition with the Bureau of Reclamation because the Corps also wanted to build dams and could build dams without needing to pay for how the dam was going to be used or, you know, they didn't have to fund the dam or dictate the way the water was apportioned, the Corps could just go build a dam. Because they're the army. Because they're the army. And then they (laughs) could hand the dam over to the Bureau of Reclamation and say, okay, we built it. You guys figure out how to use it. So did we get lots of extra dams? So we have a lot of dams. There are 1,200 plus dams um, built as a part of this project. The Central Valley Project Harnessed all the water of Northern California to turn Central Valley into this, I mean, the breadbasket of the United States. Sure, Um, The uh, Columbia River was dammed so many places in its run that it is basically, I mean, from the dalles up, is just a series of reservoirs. Uh, The Columbia River project is the largest water harnessing project in the history of mankind. And it, wow. turned, it turns all of the American, we- the Northwest, into farm where it also should have just been wasteland.
2: Well, forest, right?
1: No, no. I mean, Eastern Washington, oh, Eastern, Eastern Washington, Oregon. Those I things are just like sure they should have just been dunes. It's only wet
2: here to the mountains.
1: And this continued all the way into the sixties. And the head of the Bureau of Reclamation was a man named Floyd Dominy, and he was. One of these Western characters that wore a bolo tie and very unapologetically stood up and said, nature should be conquered by humans. We are making the world a better place. And if you stand athwart our damn project, then you are standing athwart history yelling stop.
2: That kind of F nature stuff, you know, really... It's a relic of a time when nobody had seen that go bad, I guess. Like when nature's only an enemy, you know, you only have to think about nature when it's screwing with you. You know, earthquakes, storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, famines. Like, you know, when nature is just a threat, you know, you're like, well, we got we to gotta beat it down. Well, We're spoiled today, you know. We, s- live, we live in the time when we won. And, uh, you know, now nature's screwed. We're the problem.
1: Well, just like the demolition of Penn Station in New York, touched off the architectural preservation movement right about the same time the building of the glen canyon dam in glen canyon which is upriver from hoover dam right touched off this exact sentiment that you're feeling glen canyon was this incredible incredibly beautiful remote natural environment full of you know if you see pictures of it all these sort of sandstone tubes this narrow river running through this very deep canyon, not very many people had ever experienced it. Again, a countable number of people. It's the kind of place where James Franco leaves an arm behind. Exactly. It's the kind of thing that when you make the argument against natural conservation, it's not a place that very many people could get to. You had to be a real adventurer to see it. But the people who had been there were astonished by its cathedral-like beauty.
2: So there's a kind of calculus you have to do. We could bring in twenty thousand people here on houseboats and motorboats, or do we really want?
1: Or do we save twenty this?
2: people to see just this an amazing one of a kind thing? Yeah,
1: like like this group of lanky, rich REI board members <laughs> who get down there a couple of times a year and have a religious experience. But when they built Glen Canyon Dam and Glen Canyon was flooded, there was among the Sierra Club world a tremendous sense of loss. And then Dominey and his Bureau of Reclamation started proposing further dams that got closer and closer to the Grand Canyon. It was a bridge too far, a dam too far, I guess. A dam too far. The idea that they were going to dam the Colorado River and fill up the Grand Canyon with water, which none of those dams actually would have done. But as they edged closer and closer, and I think Domini would have happily filled the Grand Canyon with water. That was, he had had no compunction about it. That was his secret dream. Ever since I was a little boy, (laughs) I've wanted to turn the Grand
2: Canyon into a
1: narrow bathtub. Let's take a break there and we'll come right back.
0: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Yousician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician slash start that's y o u s i c i a n dot com slash start so enter a man named David
1: Brower, who is president of the Sierra Club and he was one of the lanky, rich white people who had been down in Glen Canyon and he felt like he had had the opportunity to stop the building of the Glen Canyon Dam and somehow just got bamboozled and let it happen under his watch without protest.
2: Can you imagine if that is your great regret? Like for most of us, it's, you know, the person we didn't ask out or whatever. And for this guy, it's like a whole, you know, the most beautiful place on earth is underwater forever yeah. because of his little disappointment.
1: And he f- he felt personally responsible. Now he's, you know, I don't think he is. We don't blame him. But he was haunted. But he was haunted by it. And so he really started putting up a stiff resistance to the building of the Marble Canyon Dam and subsequent dams up the Colorado. And at one point, the argument that Domini made was, you're going to get more people to enjoy this environment by building these dams and building this lake, just as you were saying. 20,000 people on houseboats, as opposed to you know, 29 people who are down in this canyon have to hike in. Have to hike in and have to be fit and have to be made to do this kind of thing and have to, you know, have resources to do it. And the yeah, Sierra- There is a democratization to, uh, to a- bringing in more people on their jet skis. And that's Domini's argument, or a big part of it is, look, we build these dams, we bring water to the West, we bring electricity to the West. And I want to fill the Grand Canyon- With lukewarm water. Because we make it a playground for people. And we make it this big, beautiful lake where they can jet ski around. And, you know, it's a very 50s, 60s idea of how to enjoy the outdoors.
2: It's very uh, human-centric, anthropocentric or whatever, right? Yeah. Yes, nature should be a playground well, aren't there thousands of species already there? No, you know, not so much.
1: Yeah, but species, who cares? Species of bug, like. We're the good species. Yeah, that's right. Like, horned toads don't need a playground. And he absolutely would have, I think, proudly made that argument. Domini would have. Well, so Brower and the Sierra Club put an ad in the New York Times that said, should we also fill the Sistine Chapel with water so that people can get closer to the ceiling to see how pretty it is? and it infuriated people there was a lot of backlash you got you got a lot of damn backlash yeah. to the damn construction it got real it got real testy but this was during an era where there were all every kind of proposal you could make to dam a river was under consideration including channeling the columbia river down through oregon to california building a giant aqueduct that routed the water of the Columbia down to California to, <laughs> to further oasify the I love, California desert. I love this
2: vision of mid-century America where everyone is just sitting around dreaming of bigger and better dams. Yeah. Like today, you know, those same guys would just go buy a pickup or something. They'd go, they'd have a midlife crisis to buy a sports car. But back then you were like, I wonder what I could dam up.
1: How many national
2: parks can I put underwater
1: today? There's a story about Mulholland uh, where early on he was just kind of an administrator, a water administrator who really wanted to encourage, his mission was to encourage LA to stop growing. Like we don't have the water to make the city big. People need to stop coming here. And then the day he saw the Owens river and got (laughs) the idea of that water works in his head. He immediately developed a total messiah complex and was just like, "I shall bring water to the people, to and, my people." And from then on, he he was the biggest booster of LA. And when they when they finally opened the gates on his his aqueduct and water kept well, started flowing, there was a huge crowd there that day. There were speeches prepared. There was a big you know a whole program, but when the water started flowing the crowd rushed forward with like tin cups in their hands. It's Mad Max. And were scooping up the water, like couldn't, you know, thrilled. And the entirety of Mulholland's speech was, there it is, take it. He's Moses. Yeah. He's he's some... Ben- it's all because uh, our
2: Judeo-Christian society is built on scripture produced in a desert climate. That's the whole reason (laughs) for this complex. Like we get this hydrophobia because we're like, I will give you water. Like what Charlton has said. Like if if our civilization was built on the Mayan Codex from a jungle, we would not have this problem at all. We'd be into jaguars or something else, but it all comes from desert.
1: So we're just crazy for the water. We want to reclaim that desert. We want to, uh, well, and also people like the sunshine. And- They they want both. Problematically, uh, things don't grow in the sun.
2: They're like, you know, they're, you know, English, Scotch, Irish immigrants. They want those green rolling hills of home and they want that, you know, blistering American sunshine warming their, they want British hills and not the climate.
1: (laughs) The perfect environment, of course, is if it starts raining at dusk and it rains until dawn and then it's sunny all day, right? But nobody's figured out a way to have the rain follow the plow that way. Even Mulholland should, the
2: rain follows the, the night sunroof,
1: the night plow. <laughs> but so this opposition to those dams on the Colorado and their success. The success of the opposition. The success of the opposition and the fact that those dams were not built empowered the environmental movement. It becomes a cause for young people. Like we've got a thing now, getting rid of dams. That's right. And- and nixon in 1973 signed the uh the uh, endangered species act and it was the beginning of this sort of t- the the sense of tying an ecosystem together if we don't have the salmon then we don't have the bears if we don't have the bears then we don't have the then nothing's controlling the populations of the deer
2: it's funny that that was not in the popular imagination because now like american public schools are pretty much
1: based on this you know Just this whole Elton John circle of life stuff, you know? But in my own lifetime, in the 70s and 80s, these ideas were promulgated as like revolutionary thought technologies. Do you understand that we need to bring the salmon back in order that the higher level predators survive. It really does make
2: forgivable all this, like the wisdom of the ancients, the simple people of the land that we have forgotten. You know, what would chief Seattle say? Because it's all true. Like the Indians did know you couldn't hunt out all the deer or eat all the salmon or like, like their life hinged on knowing this stuff. And then we did sort of forget, I guess.
1: Well, there, in a in a way that's true, but in a way that that sort of the ancients knew is a little bit sort of revisionistic because it never would have, it wasn't a problem that ever came up. The, they just didn't have the scale. There were fifteen hundred people living in that entire valley. Hey, we would have killed
2: all the buffalo too. <laughs> they there just weren't then. enough
1: of us. Yeah, they just we they, tried.
2: That's why the Indians are mad. We tried to kill all the <laughs> buffalo. We couldn't
1: do it. It never even occurred to us. We would have done it if we'd thought of it. So, so that sense of like uh, that there was some ancient wisdom that had been lost. It was just that no one had ever encountered this problem. No, no one ever tried to put. 7 million people in the Los Angeles Valley. It's a population issue. Uh, well, and this, we're also talking about at the beginning of the 20th century, there were 2 billion people on earth. And at the end of the 20th century, there were 7 billion people on earth. Wow. So it took 150,000 years to get to 2 billion people and it took 100 years to get to 7 billion people. So all of these issues are happening within the space of... A dramatic explosion in population, a need for food to be produced, a need for electricity, which didn't exist in 1880, but by 1980 was the thing that was keeping us all alive. And air conditioning also plays a role in this too. Sure. Like, you know, it's not, Phoenix
2: is not unlivable anymore. As long as you can make your living room a little cooler and the outside of your living room
1: a little hotter, it'll all work out. And that's all happening because of the power from Hoover Dam.
2: Well, we think now it's a humanitarian issue, right? Like making sure now that we have all these people, now we have to produce enough crops for all of them. And people are, uh, you know, people become heroes for inventing new strains of rice or wheat or whatever that grow slightly more efficiently. At the time we were doing all this stuff with that as our goal. We didn't even need to, we didn't even have those those billions of people yet. And we were still, you know, redrawing maps so we can get a few more strawberries or almonds or whatever.
1: Well, another famous quote of Mulholland, which is a little bit uh, recursive. Uh, He said, if you don't build it, you won't need it. The rain won't follow the (laughs) unplowed plow. So now we have all these millions of people that we are trying to support with water that isn't really there. And all this food that we're all dependent upon also grown with water that isn't dependably there. And the other factor that we haven't discussed yet is the aquifer. So under the ground, uh, in multiple places across the United States, there there were and are giant reservoirs of fresh water underground called aquifers. And- You can dig a well. You can dig a well and tap into the underground water. Well, when the river water and the dammed water wasn't sufficient to irrigate, People dug wells and started pumping water out from underground. And this coincided with the development of the giant electric pump, right? Which didn't exist in 1850.
2: You don't have to stand by the well pulling on a rope anymore.
1: Suddenly you could buy relatively inexpensively, these pumps that could just move thousands and thousands of gallons of water up out of the ground. Milkshake! And so these aquifers started to get drained. And and at first, like every natural resource, the first people to tap into it thought, oh, it's unlimited. We'll just dig coal out of the Appalachians forever. We'll just cut the forests of the Northwest forever. We'll never run out. As far as the eye can see. Right. But as more and more and more thousands of people hooked up these giant pumps and started pumping this water, the aquifers started to be depleted at a rate that could not be replenished in our lifetime. It wouldn't matter if it started raining right now and had biblical rains in California for a hundred years, that water would not fill back up. Yeah,
2: the aquifers, they
1: lower, right? They they get hundreds of feet lower. So right. wells have to be deeper and they produce less water. Yep. The water table has decreased by hundreds of feet. And in fact, the land starts to subside.
2: I've seen that, like outside of Vegas where, you know, like suddenly the land will just
1: drop six feet or something. Yeah. And the, they'll be like, yeah, sorry, you pulled out all the water. Yeah, it was floating on water. There's nothing supporting it now. and And so there are many places in the West where the land has subsided by a foot or more. Just like under a town, right? I mean, it's, yeah,
2: there's urban areas in Utah and Nevada where suddenly half the block is just
1: feet lower. Yeah. So those aquifers can't be replenished. And right now we're living in early 21st century. We're living in tremendously borrowed time because we don't have, we don't have any way to get water to the millions of people in LA and San Diego, etc. cetera. If the Colorado river runs dry and we don't have the water to support this incredible agricultural industry that we're all dependent upon. If the water from the aquifers dries up and we are on a razor's edge with both of those resources, even now we had a rainy year this year, but we've just come out of a period of extended drought where the reservoirs were all getting down to the sandy bottoms.
2: So, you know, and it's more likely than ever that you'll have unseasonal atypical weather because climates are changing. Right. I wonder if our hypothetical future listeners just are angry just to hear the sound of our voices. Like we're the ones who were partying on borrowed time. Right. We benefited by using all these uh, resources that were not sustainable. I mean,
1: I take six baths a week.
2: Sure. I'm, take, I'm, I'm in a bathtub right now, John. Like, could you, can you get my back? We both are. <laughs> we're both in twin bathtubs, <laughs> side by side. John's head is where my feet is and vice versa, which is yeah, how we always make these right. recordings. Uh, and yet we're talking to people in the future who probably sell their preteen daughters for uh, a ladle full of uh, dirty water.
1: Well, they, although they may be uh, cold blooded sun bathing, uh, super amphibians who, or maybe they're great, great, great tunnelers and they're down 2000 feet down in in fresh, cold, clear water.
2: They live in the water table. They are also <laughs> listening to us in bathtubs. The problem with evolution is it's so slow, you know, yeah. like it can, it can take 20 years for us to, uh, totally change our lifestyles and need electricity or deplete a water table or whatever, but you know, It'll evolution be is going to take years. thousands. Yeah. Unless you get mutation. That's why you really need a good radioactive war every now and then to kickstart the weird evolutionary changes that man will need to survive.
1: Yeah. And I think that, I think that we are putting so much stress on this system right now and it is, it is still argued. Both these sides are still arguing. Sure, there's plenty of, you know,
2: what's the ar- argument going to be? Let's like not make enough food?
1: Right. Like it's very hard to, uh, to back it off. If you drive down I-5, there are billboards all along the way posted by angry farmers who seem to feel, if you read their billboards carefully, seem to feel that that irrigation water and that water table water was always there. That was their God-given right and they're mad at the government. The government. Who is now trying to apportion that water differently.
2: Well, ironically, you know, the, it was the, the government is the only reason a lot of this these agricultural areas even exist. Right. The
1: government put it there, and it was the government that was subsidizing it the entire time. Like, um, the water would have been thousand times more expensive if it hadn't been if it wasn't sort of provided as a part of this giant public works project. So what was the actual correct policy
2: have been like, what does the West look like if we had done it right? Like there's people in, there's nowhere, but nobody between Seattle and Portland and
1: what Denver? Well, this is, I guess it, it's a question of priorities, right? If our idea was to have built according to completely sustainable, environmentally aware, gentle, uh, leave your campsite better than you found it policies. The city of Los Angeles would have 75,000 people. Only three in and outs. And there would be no Las Vegas and Phoenix would be some Adobe. I mean, there wouldn't be a West.
2: To me, this sounds like a paradise. No Phoenix, smaller
1: LA, no Vegas. But there are, but there are millions of people who think of that as being the only good part of the United States. And you, I think that the jury might still be out whether or not, I mean, when we talk about going to Mars, no one says, we need to preserve Mars. <laughs> you know, people are like, let's sure. terraform it, let's terraform Mars.
2: The new thing always looks like an inexhaustible thing to
1: ruin. Right. Like, Blank canvas, baby. If they're, I mean, in the Mideast right now, I mean, these water stresses also are not exclusive to the United States. The most water-stressed areas of the world are the Arabian Peninsula, northern Pakistan.
2: Well, luckily nothing happens when those guys get mad. (laughs) Like when
1: when young angry males in that country, you know, get mad, we're fine. But here's what's interesting is that when water becomes worth more than oil, the thing about the value of water is it's very localized. Like... You can't put it in a tanker. Yeah, the Arabian Peninsula is never going to export water to anywhere else. So... The cost of water there is really just borne by them. And if there are water wars between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, those aren't going to presumably explode out into the larger world. They're going to be very localized. In northern Pakistan, there are, I mean, population rates are exploding there. There are hundreds of millions of people and an extremely stressed water system. That's always on the verge of total collapse. And if it happens, like they don't have the resources there to have some emergency. I mean, if there wasn't water in LA, those people, rich LA people would truck it in or, you know, they'd figure something out. I mean, in Israel right now, they're building desalination plants. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, But that's an incredibly expensive and power intensive technology. You need a lot of electricity.
2: So it seems like what we're looking at, what we need and what I hope to God our, our listeners actually have mastered is some kind of clean power source, you know, a fusion or something that massively lowers power and energy costs such that desalination becomes an option.
1: Yeah. And that, is, that's what ends the water wars. This is one of the many appeals of fusion electricity, some kind of like clean electricity. And and nuclear power was right. touted as this, right? The ability to have so much power that you could do desalination. You could, you could use these sort of radical recycling technologies too. You could do anything. And in the event that you can, th- then we're back to which version of conservation, which version of reclamation is your life philosophy. Right. Because t- then if water is unlimited, you really
2: could make the whole Northern Hemisphere, I mean, do a, we- a lush Jehovah's Witness
1: pamphlet. Right. Afterlife. Do we go in and and turn all of the Sonoran Desert into a golf course if we had all the water in the world? Sure. The Sahara, too. Or do we just let the horned toads live there in peace?
2: Got a lot of stake in the game if you're a horned toad, as some of our listeners may be. That concludes Water Wars. Entry number 1414.PS6301 in the omnibus. Listeners, we don't feel that social media exists in your era in any form we would recognize with your little sticky horn-toed pads. How would you even use the keyboard? But if, by some accident, our social media systems are archived, you can find our joint tweets at at OmnibusProject, while John and I tweet individually at at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. John also has an Instagram account under the John Roderick handle. We even had an email address. That's how long ago we we're talking to you from. Email was still a thing. We're reachable at theomnibuspodcast at gmail.com.
1: Futurelings, we apologize for using all the water, for changing the climate. It wasn't our fault. We were very thirsty. We In our defense, we were incredibly thirsty. We were thirsty, and we thought we were doing good. We really did. We thought we were using the technology to make things better. Water's refreshing. Let's have it over here. Why should it all be over there? We didn't realize that by building the Suez Canal, we were going to introduce jellyfish into the Mediterranean. We didn't mean to. It didn't occur to us. Nobody told us. There was no talking head saying, but what about the jellyfish? We're not time travelers. We're, we're, we're here in linear time. We're three-dimensional beings, tragically. We cannot say from where we're sitting how long it took us to destroy the world. It seems to us here like maybe it's imminent. We hope and pray that at least we don't destroy the world in our lifetimes, because we would like to live and keep taking baths and eating macaroni and cheese until we die natural deaths. You're just taunting them now. But the worst may come soon. And if it does, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. Hopefully that is not the case. And we will be back with you soon for another entry in the the Omnibus.